Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hey, Eric. So today we have our second special episode from the LA Times Festival of Books, and in this show, we're speaking with Nafisa Thompson-Spires, author of the short story collection Heads of the Colored People, and poet Carl Phillips, author of Wild as the Wind. Okay, so what I really loved about our conversation with Nafisa is not just hearing about kind of how she arrived at these stories and the kind of aesthetic and political work that she's trying to do with them, but also getting to hear about kind of how she's inspired by the work of other writers who I deeply uh, admire and respect, like Paul Beatty and Ishmael Reed, and also kind of working with the short story form. I just thought that was really fascinating. Uh-huh. Yeah, you guys were dropping some some book titles that right, I really wanted right. to exactly, read. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um of Ishmael Reed especially. Also the these groups that it's kind of like play groups that she researched right. and, and, and observed and got into. I yeah, it it's super fascinating. Good great territory for mixing up, you know, different codes of identity and totally really smart great great scene setting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then Carl Phillips obviously like quite different in terms of like the content but it's like I loved hearing about him have like he's has a boyfriend who's uh, a little bit younger than he is and it was the first time that he'd used a cell phone for texting and so kind of like learning how to like participate in these like new kind of communications mediums that he wasn't used to using before I thought that was great and then obviously I also I don't know if this made it onto the actual show but I had told him that I was angry at him when I met him because he made me cry on the train mm-hmm. because of this very beautiful poem about the loss of an animal um, I think I believe it was the loss of a dog, of a pet dog. And I just, I mean, there's so much in that collection about loss and meaning and kind of putting the world together and what it means to be in love with someone. It's just beautiful. Mm. Is that is it hard to make you cry? It doesn't it seem is. like it. Uh, well, it? <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to know the right levers to pull. <laughs> there are there are levers that are reliable for right, that. But okay. yeah, um, including animal death is definitely one of them. But anyways, all right, well, we'll stop prefacing this and just get right to it. Sounds good. Well, actually, before we rush into that, I also just want to tell listeners that even though our very dear Medea Ocher is not here in the studio with us today, she is on this interview. So when we get into the interview, you'll be hearing Kate, Eric, and Medea talking to Nafisa Thompson Spires. We are thrilled to have with us today Nafisa Thompson-Spires, the author of The Heads of Colored People, the debut short story collection released in paperback earlier this year and which has been long-listed and won for a number of awards. She is also this year's recipient of the Whiting Award for Fiction and, in breaking news from just last night, also winner of the LA Times Book Prize in Short Fiction. Welcome to the show, Nafisa. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. One thing that, to open it up, one thing that a number of reviewers have talked about with regards to the Heads of Colored People is that your collection marks a sort of new turn in Black American literature, and one that I've seen you describe in a couple of interviews as the unique struggles of the post-integration generation. Can you talk about that both as a kind of political reality that you're trying to represent and as an aesthetic challenge? Yeah, I don't think I'm doing anything new necessarily, but I Ah. did feel like it was important to represent black people who are living today specifically. I feel like there's a tendency in black literature, especially literary fiction, to write about the past, to ground it in some very specific historical moment and usually the civil rights movement or slavery or reconstruction. And so for me, writing about contemporary living black people was part of my both aesthetic and political interest. 
And I'm kind of following on the heels of the post-soul writers, like Colson Whitehead and Paul Beatty and Matt sure. Johnson and those people who were doing this work, you know, 15 years ago with characters who were just a little bit younger than theirs. And I'm writing about a different kind of black person, I feel, than I've seen a lot of people do. And that's black nerds, black weirdos, people who are kind of the only one in a particular space and who are invested in strange countercultural groups like cosplayers and things like that. Now, can you explain just if I can just ask you to extend it a little bit more in terms of what does that allow you to show? Like what kind of new, by taking us into different contexts, if I'm reading you right, what does that allow you to open up? I think it opens up representation for people who feel like they haven't really seen themselves in the literature. People who feel like they're alienated both inside black culture and white culture and other cultures more generally. So who aren't black enough, allegedly, or who might seem to have the physical trappings of being involved too much in whiteness, but are still very much invested in blackness and who are misread, whose bodies are misread, whose performances of identity are misread. So those are the kind of questions I wanted to answer. What does it mean to be black in this moment, but especially if you're considered marginalized in both spaces? Have you personally felt that way? Or did you identify as a black nerd or as any of the categories that you just spoke about? I feel like it's only recently become cool to call yourself a black nerd. I was uh-huh. a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> I was totally a nerd. But like now there's this sort of pride in being a black nerd, yeah. which is really cool. <laughs> But yes, definitely. I went to a pretty predominantly white school. I'm from the Inland Empire, so from Southern California, and went to school in Covina and Claremont. And I always felt like I wasn't black enough for the few black people I knew, but also I obviously wasn't white. And so I was getting pushed back from both directions that made it really hard to sort of find my people growing up. Yeah. Tell us about some of the stories in the collection and how they, you know, deal with these things we're talking about. What happens to your characters in these stories? The first and last story both deal with police brutality and state-sanctioned violence in very different ways. So the first story is called Heads of the Colored People, Four Fancy Sketches, Two Chalk Outlines, and No Apology. And that story is a network narrative about a black cosplayer who gets gunned down at a comic book convention and sort of the people who he interacts with on that day and the way people read his body. So he's dressed in a blonde wig with blue contacts in, but he's Mm. still a black man. And the way that his body is read is very different than his costume. And then in the last story, Wash Clean the Bones, there's a black funeral singer in Chicago who's exhausted from seeing so much black death in her day job as a nurse and then in her side gig as a funeral singer. And she considers drowning her own baby to protect him from this world. But in the middle, there are a lot of goofy black people who are passive aggressive, doing strange things at the office, doing strange things at school, fighting with people in petty ways. There are two mothers who are fighting via their daughter's backpacks, leaving notes in them about whose daughter is the better kid. And they're both at this predominantly white school. So they're both hyper-conscious about being black and not aware of how crazy they look to be the only black people and fighting with each other. (laughs) Uh Have you participated in any of those sort of countercultural like cosplay or any of those things personally? I'm not personally a cosplayer. Okay. Um, <laughs> no judgment in that. It's just not my thing. Yeah. But I have observed them a lot. Okay. There's a strange, I live in Champaign-Urbana now in Illinois, and there's uh. like a big cosplay culture there, which I would not have expected. So really? a lot of my undergrad Also not students, what I would expect yeah. in Champaign-Urbana. Yeah. Huh, a lot of I my would. undergrad students <laughs> are involved in like live action role playing and cosplay, and some of them make their own costumes. So I've been to a craft night in Champaign-Urbana where I was supposed to be learning how to sew, but people were sewing their own like Viking costumes and things like that. 
that surprised You're me. You're like, I'm just trying to do a scene. I have, okay. yeah. That's have what I'm you trying observed to learn. those groups to be diverse, or are they mostly? I mean, have you seen many people of color doing cosplay? Or? I haven't seen many, but I know that okay. they're out there because I've read yeah. their okay. accounts. There's that very famous guy who won the gaming tournament, and I cannot remember his name. And he's like, I'm black, I'm gay, and I'm a furry. Mm. <laughs> and he comes out in these like increasingly like elaborate costumes as a furry. But I yeah. can't remember his name now. I was trying to look it up. I don't remember his name either. But there's a whole movement of black people who are really involved in this, and they talk about getting pushback from other cosplayers because they don't want them to dress transracially or across oh. mm. boundaries. And they're sort of like, you're doing it, you know. You're right. not an Asian woman, but you're dressed as one, so why exactly. can't I do what I'm doing? None right. of us are actually Sailor Moon. Exactly. It's yeah. <laughs> a great device for a story. <laughs> William, I think, is showing you the guy. Oh. Sonic Fox. I've Black never heard gay, of Sonic cosplay, Fox. cosplay, and furry. a furry. <laughs> Sounds very busy. Being Sorry, a furry just Sonic seems Fox, like a yeah. lot of work. This is your debut collection of fiction. What has it been like? I mean... Most authors dream of exactly what is happening to you right now, right? That you've, like, won the Whiting Award, you just won the LA Book Prize. Like, how are you processing that kind of critical success? And what are you thinking about as you head into the next collection or to what I imagine might also be a novel? It's been wonderful. I'm so, so grateful. These are all things that I hoped for and prayed for, and so it's really nice to see that stuff coming true. It feels especially good to win something in LA since I am a Southern Californian and I want that hometown love. Like, that feels... <laughs> better in a lot of ways. The next book is a novel, and I do feel some pressure, but I'm trying not to think about it that way. I'm trying to just think of each project sort of as its own entity and write what I need to write when I need to write it, not think about whether or not it's going to sort of measure up to this one. And I think that's all you can do. You know, you can't I talk about staying in the middle a lot. Like, you can't go too high with the praise and you can't go too low with the criticism. You have to sort of find your place in the middle, and that's the only way to stay stable. Because all of the prizes and things are out of my control, but mm -hmm. the writing is in my control. And so that's what I'm managing. Yeah. I wonder, since you're from here, as you said, have you found that the literary culture of L.A. has changed over the years since you grew up here and sort of now coming back? Since I don't live here anymore, it's hard for me to say. Mm -hmm. But I do think the L.A. Times Festival was always a huge deal, and it was something that my family went to and that really? was aspirational to go to regularly. Mm -hmm. I do think L.A has a huge, huge writing culture in many different pockets, and so does the Inland Empire and lots of other places in Southern California, but maybe they aren't as visible as the New York ones. Yeah. You kind of have to be here to understand that they exist. Yeah. yeah. Even though I've lived here for 10 years, almost, I don't really even know where what that is. the Inland Empire is. It's what like is everything it? in our east of LA that's inland, San Bernardino County, Riverside, Claremont, uh, Upland, Rancho Cucamonga, Rialto, Fontana, those cities. Snoop Dogg lives in Rancho Cucamonga, yeah. so he should have brought some and attention the, to that. And the there is Empire. actually a large African-American population in parts of the Inland Empire. Yeah, like, I think San Bernardino, I think it's a lot of Latinx people yeah. even mm. more now, but I think San Bernardino still has decent black populations. Maybe Fontana does. Yeah. I don't know. It's very strange. I mean, if people think LA is strange, I think the Inland Empire has some of the strangeness of LA, but then accentuated because it is like a post-industrial, it has a lot of post-industry, right? Yeah, I mean, the Inland Empire has had a lot of struggles and I think it gets a bad rap, but there are people working hard there from all different communities who are sort of struggling and there's a lot of sprawl. So I think people have been pushed out of communities with price, the inflation of homes and things like that. I've seen the prices inflate over the years from, you know, really affordable housing to things that are half a million dollars in the Inland Empire, yeah. which is kind of ridiculous. And that's radiating out across all of Southern California yeah. right now. If I can also ask you just to back up a little bit, to think about, like, 
the writers that you learned from. So you talked about Colson Whitehead, you talked about Paul Beatty. Who else are ones that you feel were really formative for you in terms of finding your own voice and then also the kind of work that you wanted to do? Matt Johnson, as a contemporary writer whose work has really influenced my own, and Percival Everett, those are two writers ah, who made yeah. me sort of feel relatively recently like, oh, I can do fun things in my work and still have a lot of social commentary and make interesting arguments via fun structural choices. But before them, Ishmael Reed was like super, super <laughs> fundamental Amazing. to my work in grad yeah. school. And I feel like they're all sort of in his lineage anyway. Like the postal that black makes I was sense. mentioning feel like they are coming out of a tradition. Especially Beatty. I mean, the satirical strain. What's your favorite? I love Ishmael Reed. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite Ishmael Reed novel? Maybe Flight to Canada, maybe Mumbo Jumbo, maybe a tie between the both of them. And even before Ishmael Reed, George Schuyler, who doesn't get oh, sure. enough love. Black No More, Black and no also More Black is Empire is another great one. Yeah. yeah. One other question that I have to kind of wrap up about the collection. Which story was the hardest for you to write, and which story just seemed to come the easiest? I would say Wash Clean the Bones was the most difficult to write because it is the only story that's just realistic with no humor, no sort of playfulness. And it's a lot darker than what I usually write, even though I do tend to write dark stories. <laughs> the one that was the easiest to write was probably Heads of the Colored People, because okay. it just sort of flowed. I followed this line that was coming to my head, like a cadence. Riley wore blue contacts and bleached his hair blonde. And I kept playing with that and seeing where it would take me until I figured out the character and then figured out the plot based on the character. Oh. So that was the most fun and I think the most rewarding. And what's your novel about? It is supposed to be about refollows Fatima, so she's one of the characters in the collection who's in three different stories, and it picks her up as a person in her late 30s who's dealing with chronic illness. She's living with endometriosis, and she gets involved in this weird a white cosplay group, so a Victorianist cosplay group who are wearing costumes and wearing steel-boned corsets, wow. making it sort of an interesting literary club that they follow while also wearing the outfits and then she's also in this group that she's not telling the white group about called the daughters of the african-american revolution and she's also not telling the daughters of the african-american revolution about this white cosplay group (laughs) and basically really dramatic things come to a head when the two groups find out about each other and there are some accusations and kind of a riot in nashville wow sounds sounds wonderful really good well we will definitely look forward to that But for right now, we have the pleasure of having spoken with Nafisa Thompson Spires, author of The Heads of Colored People. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Nafisa. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at the LA Times Festival of Books. We've been speaking with Nafisa Thompson Spires, author of Heads of the Colored People. We now turn to our conversation with poet Carl Phillips, author of Wild is the Wind. We are so excited to have with us today Carl Phillips, the award-winning author of 14 volumes of poetry and the author most recently of the collection Wild is the Wind. We also have some breaking news as of last night, which is that Carl has won the LA Times Book Prize in Poetry. So congratulations to that and welcome, Carl. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So can we just open up into Wild as the Wind? I was joking with you earlier that I kind of hated you this morning because you made me cry on the train. Uh Um, There are a lot of poems in that collection about like dying animals, your dog's sovereignty, maybe not a real dog, who knows? We'll talk about that. Um, But can you talk about what you were processing as you were working on that particular collection? Well, well, sure. 
But I feel like I should preface it by saying I don't think in terms of um, a book. You know, like ah, a lot of okay. people I know know they're going to write a book about a certain thing, okay. and then they're writing towards it. A friend of mine just last week was saying she knows she has one more poem. She's not sure what it will be that's mm. going to be in the book. But I, I can't write that way. So I just write poem by poem. And then usually after a couple of years, I'll have about 50, and I'll realize I think I, think I am... Like some, I'll write something and I'll feel like this seems like it's the end, like a door has shut. So then I'll go through those and usually call about 30 out of those because I'll find that maybe it seems sometimes like I'll write about three poems and the third one is the right one. Mm. And, but two of them had to be written to get there. So yeah, and then the, the challenge is figuring out how do these poems even fit together? So I myself, I'm never thinking in terms of like here's thematic stuff going on Got or it. here's how it works. But someone pointed out to me later that, say, there's a lot of nautical reference in this book. That's true. And Lots of stuff about the sea. Yeah, sure. and I hadn't really thought about that. Um, but so that's the preface. But I, what was going on, I, and I think this is relevant, is I was starting a new relationship, and at a time of having become very skeptical about relationships, and so I was taken a little bit by surprise. And and I feel for me, a lot of the poems, part of it is reflection on being older and so there's a lot about memory and you know looking at the past and loss yeah and loss and and in the face of that thinking well then why when you know what comes with relationships whether with people or with dogs or whatever why commit again and so that's why like the last poem in the book wild is the wind has this idea of like what does it mean to even stay with somebody is that and and it ends with this line i'm not done with you yet the idea of not being done with a person, but maybe not being done with love and and saying no to a kind of despair that is easier to commit to. So that was a long answer. Just stop me. No, that was perfect. Yeah. Um, this, you can say if this is too personal, but... It doesn't... I'm Because I have not been drinking and it's yeah. morning, I, I'm liable to say anything. That's that's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I was hoping to get you not drunk. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like we lucked out. Yeah. Um, well, that makes it sound horrible, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh. But can you... D- I, it's interesting to hear you say that you were writing this from a point of view of starting something new uh-huh. and also sort of feeling skeptical to it. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about... Um, your relationship to writing about love or writing about romance over the years? I mean, it's not as if I set out to write about relationships I'm in. You know, I'm not like Taylor Swift, you know, someone like that. But it seems... You take everybody down. Right, but it (laughs) seems inevitable that how we learn about relationships is by being in one. And, you know, an early book of mine was very much written out of first coming out and how I came out was through falling in love with somebody and so it makes sense to me that the poems would then be wrestling I was sort of thinking what is because I'm old there weren't many models back then for a life with a same-sex partner that's stable and it's more like you know you sure there's porn or you know there's secret sex and all that but what about just day-to-day stuff you know where you eat dinner together so I found myself writing from the relationship in that sense, not rec- not you know recording it like a diary, but uh, and I also think then it also led to what is faith, you know, and and what makes us trust somebody, you know, like when they leave for work, what makes them believe that you're doing what you're doing and they're doing what they say, and and so ideas of the invisible bonds that hold us together, and so I feel I may have strayed from the question, but but bringing it to the newest book. I do think that because 
happens to be a relationship where there's a 22-year age difference, I being the older one. Mm -hmm. And so there have been interesting challenges with, you know, communicating with somebody who's a very different generation and, and also not wanting to seem like the older, wiser one. You don't want to be mm -hmm. condescending and, and I certainly don't want to be paternal and, you know, that kind yes. of thing. So I found that the poems in the newest book, I think, wrestle with that difference and accepting certain distances between people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Do you find it easier to write in points of transition or, or intense feeling when, when, for instance, in a new mm. relationship mm -hmm. or facing loss? I mean, do, are those the things that spur you on to write more? Yes, but on the other hand, I feel as if we're always like in a period of transition anyway, you know? Like even if there's stability, first of all, there, there's, look, I have my students who will say, well, I feel like I haven't suffered, you know? Or I suffered once. And what am I going to do in the future? And I think, Lucky you know, you're, students. I know, I think you're <laughs> yeah. actually going to suffer all the time. And it doesn't have to be major <laughs> stuff, you know. I think sometimes they'll look for catastrophe. But, you know, just the, first of all, the inevitable things of losing friends or, you know, estrangement, but also death um, or parents or thinking you've nailed something like love. But how you feel about love at 30 is so different from at 40, at 50. So I feel as if it's always a change and even in a new relationship at some point it's not new it's got to transition into being yet another relationship you're in all the time so then how do you what's the next transition beyond that and how does it not lead to just expiring I, I wanted to ask you in, in a related way I mean one of the things that I thought when I was reading this collection uh -huh. is and this may or may not have been intentional or even real but the kind of queer affect of the poems mm. as it particularly relates to time so mm. the one thing that's kind of interesting to me and as you're saying it also in terms of dealing not only with your kind of own age and this almost weird like proleptic function that you have where you're like I'm kind of behind like I act like I'm 24 mm -hmm. um, and dating somebody that's much younger mm -hmm. is this kind of like how do you negotiate what's happening in a lot of those poems in terms of like repetition, history, dilation, those kinds of things where you're not exactly ever sure how you're temporarily located, which can be both like a liberation, but also mm. a kind of constraint. Like, so can you talk about how you experience time and like maturity in that way? Hmm, these are very serious questions. Um, <laughs> time and maturity and how I process them. Well, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know exactly. I mean, I how I think about those things is I, someone pointed out that one of the most common words in my poems is the word or and mm. I think because the older I get I feel as if it's actually very hard to to pin down a fixed answer about anything that's actually important so I find that the poems often are to the frustration of some um, they don't resolve they no. sort of weigh yeah. things and just when they move to certainty about something there'll be this kind of stepping back and saying, except it could also be this way. Right. And, but I feel that way not just about time and memory, but time and memory, memory especially, it seems, is that way. You, know, you, you remember something and you're certain now that over the, t over the years that it's exactly how it happened. And then you have a, someone else who witnessed it there. I mean, I had a situation like this with um, something I... Somehow I thought that my sister had not been born when when a certain thing happened. And she said, I was around. I remember that. And I thought, well, first of all, what does it mean that I erased her? Um, you yeah. know, but I, I mean, I, it was a memory of when I was 10, so I should remember I had an eight-year-old sister. <laughs> um, but but I somehow that, that event had 
slipped in time or something. And sure. so, and then there's less trusting of memory because of that. And, um, you know, or remembering, you'll remember how you met somebody. It was a certain kind of night. And then they say, oh, actually, it was 12 noon. Don't you remember? And it's like, <laughs> how could I have, how could I have thought it was this way? But, um, and then there's a wondering, or was that somebody else? And so I don't know if that answers the question, but it is a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> well, so much amasses over time. You know, you have your history just becomes. I could the, the, the space of the poem. Yeah, could be more fluid because you can kind of engage yeah. in that spectrum of, of time that you've experienced. Yeah, and I think. I mean, I think it's it's exciting, but troubling at the same time. To well, for one, because it can make one think is something wrong with my memory and there's that but then I realize this happens to everybody it does and, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's uh, you know or you it's kind of a dangerous situation where you, you you'll turn to a partner and say remember that time when we did this and then they say that wasn't me Ooh. and you oh. think oh I, I, I always have to think carefully before that happens and you think oh yeah. especially if you've say been in a relationship with someone for a super long time in the past so there was a lot of history there Right. And then yes. you don't want the new one. I've I've definitely done that. Yeah. In the past. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and it seems, in a way, I think people should understand it. Like if you're with some, I was with somebody for 18 years, and that's a long time that to be with somebody. Time. And so, you have this whole chapter you had before the other person was even born, which is oh, it's, that's it's way startling. <laughs> yeah. Once in a while, he'll remind me. You know, I was born just a month after you graduated from college. I think, oh, that's terrifying. Like if somebody said there is an infant across yeah. the country Who will whom be? you're going to be partnered with, I think no. Do you also though find that difference creepy. productive because of yeah. like the ways that you get to blend new languages? Well, of course, yeah, and uh, it is productive. I mean, I've, first of all, I, I've learned a lot. I mean, I wasn't on social media at all, um, and I would laugh when my publisher would ask if I would get on Twitter, and it's like, no, I'm not doing it. And, and it was my partner who said, yeah, you should try it for one night just to see how you like it. And then I was addicted. But he has trained me also, like, don't engage with provocative comments that people say, you know, don't, you know, kind of having to learn. I also didn't have a cell phone when I met him. And, and he, he said, how are we going to text? And I did not know what texting was. And I was like, what do you mean? And thought, can't I just call you, like, when I get home, you know? And now I only text and don't respond. I have no landline. I don't know if that's progress, but it's it's keeping up with things. <laughs> Definitely and, change. An emergency yeah. Yeah. in the present. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, but I also, I was telling someone earlier today that it kind of, it seems um, cliche to say it, but I do think that it can keep you younger. For example, I wouldn't be going to a Tom York concert. It wouldn't occur to me. I don't like to leave the house at night anyway. So, but to go out and, you know, it's, you have new adventures and think, yeah, why do people not do this? Or, on the other hand, people my age tell me I have very immature taste in music. What's your taste in music? Well, I was trying to think of this woman who, she's 17 and she does music with her brother and it's a big deal right now. It just came Billie out. Billie Eilish? Yeah, Billie Eilish. Eilish. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love that album, but no one my age knows of her. And then just the other day, a poet who's a little younger than me said... Have you heard of this Billie Eilish? My son is listening to, to her, and her lyrics are kind of dark. Should I stop it? Uh-huh. And I said, well, I, I love that album. And, you know, once again, I get the eye roll. You know, come on, Carl, you know, you're not a teenager. <laughs> but good music is good music. And, you know, I'm not sure yeah. what I'm supposed to be listening to. Frank Sinatra? You know, 
I mean, I think it's time to transition to Frank Sinatra. I think yeah, so. I you think know, so. and even I mean, I have plenty of friends who they stopped at Fleetwood Mac, and uh-huh. a lot of them say once they had kids, they stopped listening to me. I don't know why. I don't have kids, but if I did, I don't think it would stop my passion for music. Yeah, so. well, I found that podcasts have kind of made me stop listening to music, actually. But though I, I am obviously a perpetrator of uh-huh. that. Uh huh. Yeah. I get we could talk to you all day and I very much encourage people to check out the new collection of poetry Wild is the Wind which I thoroughly enjoyed even if it made me cry Um, (laughs) and thank you so much Carl Phillips for joining us we've been speaking with Carl Phillips author of Wild is the Wind and a lucky 13 other volumes of poetry thanks so much thank you Carl thank you so much Carl You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 